And you guys can turn with me to the book of Haggai. Book of Haggai. We're going to chapter 2 of Haggai today. And just so you know kind of where we're headed over the next few weeks, we will wrap up Haggai this morning. Uh, The next two weeks, we will be in the book of Joel, and we will finish that. And then we will be into the season of Advent, um, and we will uh, be out of the Minor Prophets for uh, pretty much the entire month of, well, all all of December, uh, including that last Sunday of November as well. And then we will come back in January and February of next year. We'll finish the Minor Prophets then, and we'll be into the Gospel of John for the rest of next year. So... Haggai chapter 2 this morning, we're going to read uh, the first few verses of chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. October 17th, 520 BC is the day on which the Haggai, the prophet Haggai begins this chapter, chapter two of this book. And as we said last week, Haggai is notable for the specificity that he gives regarding dates. So this is October 17th, 520 BC, and this date would have been about one month into the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem when our text today refers to this house. It's talking about the temple that last week that God called the people to engage in rebuilding, to let go of their comfort, to let go of building permanent, ornate, perhaps even lavish homes for themselves and begin working to rebuild the temple. And chapter one ended with them doing just that, with them being obedient to God. But as we pick up today, the people are discouraged. They're one month into rebuilding the temple. Uh, They're coming to terms, I think, with the enormity of the task ahead of them. Solomon's temple took seven years to build, and Solomon had basically drafted like 30,000 workers, like, like real workers, like real laborers to build his temple. But now here in Haggai, and it's not entirely clear how many Jews have actually returned to Judah at this point, but there's probably not 30,000 skilled laborers 
who can devote the whole of their time to the rebuilding of the temple. In the book of Ezra, which is contemporary with Haggai, as is the book of Nehemiah, Ezra tells us that Zerubbabel brought back 42,360 people with him. So very specific, 42,360 people. But there had also possibly been a like smaller wave, a smaller first wave of returnees. So all that to say, at this point, there are probably not more than 50,000 returning Jews in Judah. And that would have included women and children as well. So in order for the temple to be rebuilt, it truly was like an all-hands-on-deck type thing. We need everybody to be engaged in this work. Um, so this date tells us we're about a month into the rebuilding of the temple. This date also tells us that this would have been the second to last day of what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, so as you may be familiar, in Judaism, the Lord had given them a host of different feasts to adhere to. Um, and this would be at the very end of this Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been very appropriate, as we will see. Uh, this is also sometimes known as the Feast of Booths. Uh, sometimes it's known as the Feast of the Ingathering. But the Feast of Tabernacles was, like Passover, a commemoration of what God had done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. And notice he references Egypt in our text today. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be with you just like I was with you when you came out of Egypt. And so in the Feast of Tabernacles, the people were also being called to like remember, to think back and recall what God had done for them and their ancestors in the past. And like Passover, this feast also plays a significant role in scripture and a significant role in relationship to the temple. So the point of the feast, like I said, was to remind people of what God had done for them in the wilderness. God had cared for them. God had provided for them when they came out of Egypt. Um, they literally lived in booths or tents for over 40 years. But not only that, they had encountered the Lord in a tent in the wilderness. You may remember that tent called the tabernacle was essentially a makeshift temple that they would set up and tear down and pick up and carry with them to the next place. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was eight days long, the people would remember that time by literally constructing tents or booths or tabernacles that they each would live in during the days of the feast. And it's remarkable, like I, when you think about that, when you think about Passover, the way the Lord wants his people to commemorate his faithfulness is not just in this like kind of uber spiritual way, but it's also in this very visceral, physical way as well. I literally want you to take a week of the year and live outside in a tent you created so that your mind is and your heart is reminded of my faithfulness to your ancestors in the wilderness. I mean, it really is a remarkable thing. And uh, so often when we come to the communion table, we're reminded of the fact that the elements of communion are meant not just to be this ritualistic thing that we take in, but, but the elements are actually meant to remind us of what God has done for us through Christ. 
the unleavened bread, the wine, like the taste of these things. This is the same thing with Passover. The taste of the food, like the experience of the meal, was meant to be this visceral, physical thing that called people's attention, called their minds and hearts back to what God had done in the past. This was also a feast that took place around harvest time. So in some ways, Um, I mean, it would have taken place around this time of year that we're in right now. But in Haggai's day, the people were not experiencing a significant harvest, as we saw last week. If you remember chapter 1, the Lord said, you're not seeing great fruitfulness in your work and in your labor. You're not seeing a lot of things come from it because you've devoted yourself to yourself and not to me. Like you've devoted your hearts and your minds and your time and your money and your efforts and your energy to yourself Rather than primarily asking what my will is, what does God want? As one scholar writes, the observance of a major feast in the midst of temple ruins, together with a lack of crops at a festival designed to celebrate the harvest, would have especially reminded the people of their desperate plight, of the fact that without God, they have no hope. Without God, and this is the point he was making last week through Haggai, without him, they could not feed themselves. They couldn't care for themselves. And listen, the same thing is true for us. And yet we blow through our days without even thinking about it, without even recognizing the way that God literally keeps us breathing the way that God has provided for our families, the way that God has brought children into our lives, all of these things that God has done in our lives and in the world around us, so often we can buy into the lie that it all rests on us and that it's all about us, and and so it makes it easy for us to justify our self-focus. And yet these people find themselves without great harvest staring down this pile of rocks that is the temple that God has called them to rebuild, which is going to take years, wondering how are we going to pay for this? How are we actually going to do this? And it would be an opportunity for great discouragement, as it would have been for us. Um, So this is a discouraging time. This is a tough time for these people, I think. Even only a month or so into rebuilding it's already clear that this new temple is not going to be what the previous one was. It's going to be a shell of the previous temple. Um, Even though it had been at least 70 years since the Jews were originally exiled and taken away to Babylon, there are people in these returning parties who saw the old temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. They saw Solomon's temple, and they had to have been really young. Like, they had to have been maybe 10, 15 tops, but they remember it. And they recognize that this new one that's being constructed is nothing like the old one. And and I don't know about you, but I mean, I think things also just kind of seem bigger when you're a kid as well. I, um, for the first, uh, I don't know, 10 years of my life, we lived in one house and I have all these memories from this house. And I saw recently that it was on the market. And so I just on realtor.com was looking at pictures of this house I grew up in. And everything like looked the same, like a lot of my memories of where things were in the house, where, yeah, that was accurate, but it just seemed so small. And yet when I was a kid, it seemed huge, right? Like the, my, my bedroom seemed like this huge room, and I'm looking at these pictures going, this doesn't, this doesn't track with my memory of this. Um, 
And yet, I think for these folks, as they're seeing this temple reconstructed, there's maybe some element of that going on, right? Like time has maybe uh, hyped it up a bit, and yet they're seeing it, and it isn't just an illusion of time. This new temple is literally smaller than the first. And the first was so ornate. If you read back through all of the texts about the, the original temple and the amount of, like, uh, artistic handiwork that went into it and the in- intricacy of it. This new one is just nothing like it. So the beginning of chapter two here is a word of encouragement. In the midst of their discouragement, it is a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel, who is the heir to the throne of David, um, and to Joshua, who is the high priest, and to the people, encouraging them to press on despite their disappointment. Look at verse three. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, in spite of the fact that this looks like nothing. Be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Remember last week we said God's calling people not just to forsake their comfort, but God is literally calling people to manual labor. He's calling them to work. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Even though you've broken that covenant many times, I'm still keeping it. I'm still here. I'm still with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And this could be language straight out of the book of Joshua, right? Hundreds of years earlier, when God was originally bringing this people into this land, into this promised land that he had given them, God told Joshua, way back in the book of Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them, again, mentioning the covenant, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, the law, to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what Haggai is saying could just be like a paragraph that he's ripped out of Joshua. It is so similar. And yet, they are coming back to the land after reaping the fruits of not doing what God had originally commanded through Joshua, which was to not let the word of the Lord depart from their lips, to meditate on it day and night, to literally make his law central in their lives, to have their lives revolve around it. And what we've been looking at over the last few months, most of this year, as we've studied the minor prophets, has been the story of a people who has not done that. They've abandoned the law of God. They've stopped speaking about it. They've stopped meditating on it. They've turned away from lives where it's the center of everything. And so they became frightened and anxious and worried and dismayed with good reason, with good reason. 
But God is saying the same thing now after another period of like wilderness wandering, which is when Joshua brought the people into the land after that 40 years wandering around in the desert. Now, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, they're coming back and God says, I have brought you here and I am with you. And for those reasons alone, you have no business being discouraged and you have no business being afraid. And if you, uh, you've probably heard this before, but this is one of the most common refrains, particularly in the Old Testament. Do not be afraid because I'm with you. That there is something about God being with us that should make us go, God is here. He's with us. He's not gone. He's not absent. God is with us. And then the Lord, through Haggai, makes a promise to the people. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That phrase, Lord of hosts, by the way, is a unique phrase that we don't find throughout the Old Testament. Haggai especially loves it. Um, And it's a way of saying uh, the God above all other gods, like the the one true God, the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory, don't miss this part, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is a significant promise that he makes to the people in the midst of their discouragement, in the midst of calling them to be strong and courageous, he makes this promise to them that the temple that they are constructing, that that the glory will be greater than even Solomon's temple. And, And the question we should be asking is, how in the world is that possible? How in the world is that possible? Undoubtedly, that's the question that these people are asking. He began this whole thing by going, this is a shell of its former self, isn't it? All you folks who saw the original temple, this is nothing like what it was, and yet my promise is its glory will exceed that of even the most glorious temple that this land has ever known. How is that true? How is that true? First, I think there's a I think there are two ways that's true. Let's get into the first one. First, God promises to shake, is the word that the ESV uses, to shake the nations so that treasure will come in and fill the house with glory. The Hebrew there for shake is the word ra'ash. There's probably like a a ra'ash. I can't do it, but ra'ash literally means shake. Or tremble, or you could use that word to talk about like an earthquake. That, that's the image that's being used. And in the context here, if another, nation, if another nation is a person, it's almost as if God's saying, I'm going to pick that nation up by its heels and I'm going to shake it upside down until all like the money in its pockets falls out. It's a shakedown, right? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna shake the nations and, and the wealth, the riches of the nations are gonna come pouring in. Scholar Richard Taylor says, Haggai envisioned a situation where God would so move among the non-Israelite nations that they would supply the needed revenues for the project of temple building. So in the most literal sense, Haggai's saying, don't worry guys, I have all the silver, I have all the gold. It's a way of God saying, like, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? All of this is mine, and so I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a way for you to be able to do this work. I'm going to make it possible for you. And that's exactly what happened. Before long, and this is, this is amazing, before long, the Persian king Darius, who we read about last week at the beginning of this book, the Persian king Darius, who had allowed the people to return from exile, actually winds up providing the funding so that they can rebuild the temple. And how crazy is that? I mean, this is the ancient world, and this conquering superpower not only allows people who could easily have been their slaves, allows them to return to their own land in droves by the thousands They not only do that, but they also provide significant financial resources for them to rebuild holy places that the Persians don't even recognize as having any spiritual validity. I mean, God is literally like shaking them and the money's just falling out of their pockets. That's unheard of. So clearly the Lord's at work in this story. So, so that's, that's one way in which this promise is true, that Haggai, or that God, rather, we should say, is making to the people through Haggai. But then secondly, notice in verse 7, the language that God uses, verse 7, God says that he is going to fill the temple with glory. He's going to fill the temple with glory. And glory is a really interesting word in the Old Testament. It's used in a number of different ways. There, there are different words that get translated as glory. But, but the Hebrew word here is the word kabod. K-A-V-O-D. Kabod is how it's pronounced. Which more literally, like it means wealth, which would make sense in the context of this passage. Like I'm going to fill the temple with wealth. And literally, there is money coming in to build it. But, but here, kabod is combined with the verb for to fill, which throughout the Old Testament is related to something akin to wealth, but very different from monetary wealth. All the way back to the tabernacle, to the tent in the wilderness that the people carried around, Exodus 40 Verses 34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud, which was this physical representation of the glory of God, the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The wording there is the kabod of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In 1 Kings, when the original temple was dedicated by Solomon, there's this great ceremony that takes place. 
and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the center room in the temple, the most holy place. And it was said in 1 Kings 8, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the kabod of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here in Haggai, the prophet literally says there is a coming kabod that is going to fill the temple and is going to make the latter kabod greater than the former kabod. In a little while, he says, there is coming a time where the glory of the Lord is going to fill this place again, and it's going to be greater than it even was before. And this was the hope of the people of Judah. This was their hope. This is what they wanted. God with us. God present. Not absent, not gone away somewhere, but God here. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied while the people were in exile, and he saw all kinds of visions. In Ezekiel 43, he says, And then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. This is a vision. He says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when I came to destroy this, when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chibar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. Now, this is while the people are in exile, right? So the temple's destroyed. There is no temple right now. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever, and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. He's describing there at the very end the very sins that had led them into exile, right? They've gone, as, as if you remember in Amos, they've gone whoring after other gods. He used that word over and over and over again. And, and God, is, um, God is incensed at the violence of Israel as well. So this was what the people longed for, was this kind of vision that Ezekiel has had, that God's presence, God's glory is going to return and it's going to come back in and he's going to dwell amongst us yet again, God with us. And so there are two ways that you can look at all of this. One is that all of this is just about a physical place. It's just about this building, this physical temple, a structure. It's about architecture. Or it's about something bigger than just that. That when Haggai says that the latter glory will be greater than the former glory, that he isn't talking simply about like the distinction or honor of the physical place of the temple, but that he's actually talking about something else. In Luke 2... The baby Jesus 
is brought to the temple that Haggai called the people to rebuild. Jesus is brought into the temple. And in verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Notice how this, we're trying to follow the law of the Lord to a T. We're trying to follow the word of God. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, this holy man who's waiting for all of these things to come to fruition. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And not only that, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is Jesus being brought to the temple for the first time. And the insinuation is the holiest, most elderly people in the temple recognize that something is going on here. Later, the Apostle John writes in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One chapter later in John 2, he says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Here's this feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those, this is the same temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. It's taken a lot longer than that. It's taken over 400 years at this point. But at this particular moment in time, King Herod had been engaged in a massive expansion project of the temple that had taken 46 years. He says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, verse 21, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It is in Christ that we learn that when Haggai spoke of the glory of the Lord filling the temple, he wasn't simply talking about the honor or distinction of the physical place. He wasn't simply talking about like actual money coming in to build the temple, that even greater than that, he is talking about the person of Jesus, the word become flesh, whose body is the temple of God. Isaiah the prophet foretold in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. One of the most frequently repeated phrases in the scripture is what we read earlier. Do not be afraid. And why should we not be afraid? We said it earlier. Why? Because God is with you, is what he says. It's what he says to Joshua. It's what Haggai says to the people. Don't fear. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. God is with you. And yet some of us live in perpetual states of fear and its derivatives, worry and anxiety. And yet the call of God, the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, is the same. Do not fear because I am with you. And yet the latter withness has exceeded the former witness. God is not just with us, but he is in us. He has come to indwell our bodies and our lives. And yet, what did he tell Joshua? Take my word, meditate on it day and night, and speak it, and be careful to do according to all that is written in it. In other words, stay focused. Stay focused on what truly matters. Be obedient and do the things that I've told you to do. If you want success, if you want prosperity, his message to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament is, if you'll just be with me as I am with you and do what I tell you to do, I promise you things are going to be okay. Friends, is it possible that you need a radical refocusing around a God-centered life because that's actually where hope and courage and fearlessness come from? Truly placing him at the center of everything? Last week, Haggai called the people to consider their ways. That's what he called them to. Think about what you're doing. Watch yourself. And turn from your comfort, turn from your self-focus to the Lord and turn to obedience. Reorient your lives around him rather than around yourselves. But then having done that, he encouraged them that God would accomplish great things through them. 
This is all a part of the process, the rebuilding of this temple, Jesus arriving on the scene. By the way, did you know that many scholars believe that Jesus was actually born during the Feast of Tabernacles? That uh, the date of December 25th, it, it actually gets established about 400 years after the birth of Christ. So it's, it's, it's kind of a guess, but scholars read the scriptures and they go, if it was December, there would not have been shepherds out sleeping in the field with their sheep. So it was probably a little earlier in the year. God wanted to accomplish great things through the people of Israel throughout the ages, but here during the time of Haggai, it's especially true. It doesn't mean that you don't have to work. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that you don't have to forego comfort. It doesn't mean that you don't have to be obedient. It doesn't mean God's going to pick up everything and do everything for you and open every door and pour money out from the sky. But that doesn't mean he's not with you. And even now, as the latter glory exceeds the former glory, God's not just with us. God is in us through the presence of Christ and his Holy Spirit. And so this morning, let us not... Just turn our words to him, our lip service, but let's truly turn our lives over to him in faith. This is what the rule of life retreat was all about this weekend. It's all about like what what are the things in your life that facilitate a life that revolves around Christ rather than around yourself? Like what are the guideposts, the boundaries that you've set up so that it's easier, even though it's always going to be hard, so that it's somewhat easier for you to stay focused on what God has for you. This morning, let us go to him in prayer. Let us thank him for the beauty of all of this, how he's brought this together. But let's give him thanks and seek in even increasing ways to turn over more and more of our lives to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word and truth. In an age where truth is an increasingly kind of murky and dubious thing to many people, I pray, God, that we would find ourselves centered in your truth and that we would not be swayed either to the left or to the right, that we would not turn from it or be pulled away from it by outside voices, but would stay focused on the reality of you, the reality of Emmanuel, God, with us, that we are not alone, that we are not separated, Father, but that you desire to not just be with us, but be in us, guiding us and leading us, calling us to obedience, using us as the body of Christ, as your kingdom ambassadors, to model the way of your kingdom and to share the good news of your kingdom with everyone around us, Father. Give us grace in our self-focus, in our vanity. God, call us back to you and help us to truly see that your will is primary, that it is more important than my will. And, And Father, may my will disappear into your will. As John the Baptist said, may I decrease so that you might increase. Father, reveal the places in our heart and in our lives and our homes where we have clearly not given you control, where we are clearly not being obedient to you. And Father, would you lead us in your kindness to repentance? 
Would you sanctify us and grow us and shape us? In the name of Christ, amen.